And as you sit, if you would take out your scriptures and open to Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you do not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. pray. God and Father, I pray that you would be near to us now as we reflect on your word and how it calls us to repentance. pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this summer we are preaching through a number of psalms um, and touching often on some of the best-known psalms. And for this psalm to make sense, though, we need to know what lies behind it. So first, just so you know, um, if you open your Bible and thumb through it, I think most of you know there are all these headings in the Bible that, um, you know, that are kind of in italics and mark the different sections. And those headings are not a part of the original Bible, right? Those are just things that the guys who, you know, who wrote it for you put in there to help you know where you are. They're, they're helpful, but they're not, you know, they're not God's inspired word. Um, but the psalms are a little bit different. While there are these kinds of headings and italics in some of your Bibles that give titles to the Psalms, the stuff underneath that, the like, you know, of the sons of Asaph or whatever, that's actually in the original Hebrew text and properly probably should be part of verse 1. Um, and that's important in this Psalm because if you look at that, that um, what's, they call it the superscription, the title, we'll just call it, okay? If you look at the title of Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music, a Psalm of David, 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So if you want to read this story, it is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But here's what happens, right? David is the king of Israel. He's God's chosen king, and he is doing pretty well for himself. And Israel is doing pretty well, and his armies are off fighting in a war. And David goes up on top of his palace, and he sees a lady bathing on one of the roofs of the nearby houses. And so um, David who, just to be clear, is already married, goes and asks about this lady and finds out that she's married to Uriah, who is one of his champions uh, fighting his war for him. And David decides to um, have this lady, Bathsheba, come visit him in the palace, and things go the way that you expect that they would go. And they continue to go that way, and that a few months later, word comes to David that Bathsheba is pregnant which is a problem because his army is off in the field at war, and so there's no way that, you know, that anyone's going to, um, yeah, to not understand that something happened. So first he calls back Uriah and tries to cover his tracks. He, um, He gets him drunk and tries to send him home to his wife so that maybe he can just be like, well, I guess that baby grew kind of faster than normal. Um... But uh, that doesn't work. Uriah is a loyal soldier who says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay here at the palace. Um, And, um, you know, I'm not going to, like, go home to my wife when my men out in the field can't go see theirs. And so then David goes and talks to his general and, um, and comes up with this plan with him where they will send some of his mighty champions, including Uriah, up, charging against the city's walls. And then they'll pull back the rest of the army and not tell them to pull back and let them all die. And that's what they do. And Uriah and a bunch of other soldiers are killed to cover this up. All right? And let me just note this here before we talk about what happens next. Um, At that point, it is very clear in the story that David is under God's judgment for for the choices that he's made. I, um, this week, heard a pastor um, on television use this story to explain that God doesn't care about the character of people in public kind of roles. And that is not the point of this story, because what happens next in the story is that the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, God knows what you've done, and he's going to kill you and your whole family for it. Um, And (laughs) um, needless to say, David is not um, happy about that. But that's God declares judgment on David for his sins. And the only reason that the story doesn't play out that way, and that David is somebody we remember as continuing as king, is because of what happens next. And what happens next, in a sense, is this psalm. This psalm is David's prayer of public repentance for what he did. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in the story, But as David publicly repents of his sin, God does spare him of some of that judgment. There are still very serious consequences that David and um, Bathsheba and the others around them face because of it. David suffers in significant ways, and they lose the child that was a product of this union. And the fallout of this sin ultimately results in Israel being split in two. There's a whole lot we could say about how these choices have consequences, but... God does spare David the judgment that would have otherwise come. And he forgives him and ultimately works to restore him. And so the point of that story and the point of this psalm is to remind us that what matters ultimately is repentance. Um, 
that David deserves far worse than he gets, and it is because he repents that God chooses to spare him. So I think we feel uncomfortable when the Bible tells stories like that, right? <laughs> Let me just acknowledge that up front. And part of that, I think, is because we don't appreciate um, what the Bible is actually meant to be doing. Uh, I think that we come to the Bible expecting these sort of moral fables, or at best, at the most, we have like, you know, stories, these are the heroes in the Bible, and these are the bad guys in the Bible. And what we're having here is this story about David, um, the adulterer and murderer, who is also one of the, um, the central characters, and often, right, I think we think is supposed to be one of the heroes of the Bible's stories. But the Bible doesn't work like that for two reasons. One is because the Bible um, insists that every character that isn't Jesus is human and therefore sinful in significant ways. Um, they do some good things, and there are ways that they are good examples for us. But they also do some bad things and sometimes terrible things. And the Bible insists that we need to recognize both of those realities about these people. More than that, though, I think the Bible tells us stories like this one because even when people are held up as examples for us, they're not meant to be examples of being perfect. Rather, they are meant to be examples of people in relationship with God. And that's really what David's repentance in this psalm and in this story is meant to provide us with, right? Not a picture of this guy who never messes up, but a picture of this guy who is sinful in significant ways and is in relationship with God. And so as we come to this psalm, we do see a model of something, but it's a model of repentance. It's a model of what our repentance in relationship with God should look like. And so here's what I want us to do with this psalm this morning. Just two things. Um... While David sins significantly, his repentance is held up for us as a good example of it. So first, I want us to pay attention to that and just talk a little bit about the nature of repentance as we find it in this psalm. And then I want us to talk about God's response to repentance, because that's also what matters in this story and this psalm. So let's start with the nature of repentance. That word, repent, is not one that we use a lot um, in our world. We say that, you know, we like say we're sorry or apologize to people. And those words exist kind of in the same realm as that word repent, but they really don't do it justice. Repentance in scripture is something that comes from the heart and is much deeper and more profound than just saying you're sorry. In particular, in our text, I think we see highlighted three things about what repentance really means. First, repentance acknowledges the awful truth about our sin. Repentance acknowledges the awful truth. If you start in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's doing two things at once. First, he's expressing this emotional weight that is a part of his repentance, right? My sin is always before me. I can't stop looking at it. I can't get it off my mind. And secondly, he recognizes the deep gravity of what he's done. When he says, against you and you only have I sinned, he's not saying that other people weren't hurt by his sin, but he's saying that his sin wasn't just something he did in the human sphere, but that it was an act of rebellion against God himself. God who created David and God who created Bathsheba and Uriah and all these other people his sin hurt, um, that it is ultimately God who he's guilty of sinning against. And he also acknowledges the awful truth of his sin in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This wasn't just like a blip on the radar or an accident. He's saying in a sense that this, while particularly grave, is the sort of sin that has always been a part of my actions. And verse 6, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb and taught me wisdom in that secret place. Which is to say that that's true, that he's always been walking in this sin despite the fact that God has given him every opportunity to do otherwise. David recognizes that this isn't something he can just blame on God. I think we sometimes think about sin um, as this thing that almost happens to us, right? Some people use that, uh, the idea of these verses and the idea of original sin, which is the theological way people talk about it, to kind of say, like, it's not my fault, right? That just, like, I was just born like this. But Scripture's way of handling original sin is not to say that it's somehow something that happened to us. Rather, it's just something that's always been true of us. That we have always been crooked in ways in our hearts. That we have always rebelled against God in different ways. Not that we somehow are these innocent people that kind of, from the outside, are forced into this sinful um, choices. But that sin exists in us and always has. And so the first part of repentance... Is just owning those awful truths. We constantly work to minimize our sin in our world, to excuse it. All of us do that. You think about you think about the way that public figures apologize for things, right? You know, and I mean, you know, it's I'm sorry for this thing that I did by accident because I was having a bad day that wasn't really my fault, and I'm really sorry that you were offended by it, right? You know, something like that is the way that people apologize. But we all do that too, I think. When we wrong someone, we try to explain it away, or we try to compare it to other people, right? We say, well, it really wasn't that bad. But in repentance, the way David shows it, we stop that minimizing, and we just name it for what it is. We name the awful truth of the things that we've done. We say, yes, I have hurt you. I have sinned against God. I take responsibility for that. I admit it. I don't have an excuse. So repentance is about acknowledging that. And then it's also about owning what we deserve because of our sin. Repentance recognizes the consequences for our actions and admits that they are just. So the second half of verse 4, David says, So you are right in your verdicts and justified when you judge. And bear in mind that the verdict that David is talking about there is his own being removed as king and killed by God. That's what the prophet Nathan says that God is, God's judgment is. Um, and David is asking for mercy in this prayer, right? We're going to get there in a minute. Repentance, and it's not that he's not asking for mercy, but he's saying that, like, what I'm asking for is mercy, right? That, that I don't deserve what I'm asking from you, God, but that I'm asking you to forgive me even though I don't deserve it, even though this punishment, this consequence, in a sense, is what I deserve. And David acknowledges that his sins deserve, in a sense, a separation from God. In verse 11, he prays, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Which is not to say that if you mess up, God's going to just, like, throw you away, right? I think people sometimes worry about this verse that way. But it is David recognizing that he has rebelled against God. And that that's, in a sense, what he deserves because of that rebellion. So true repentance acknowledges the awful truth, and it owns that we deserve justice. And true repentance also seeks a changed heart. Um, it seeks a changed heart. 
David asks for this in verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's not just asking for God's forgiveness, but he's asking for obedience to be restored, to be drawn and changed in a way that pursues God again. The same thing in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That second line is a prayer for heart change, to be sustained as he seeks to walk after God and to have his heart be altered. I put it that way, it seeks a changed heart because there's this tension I feel. It's common in churches to hear repentance summarized as a 180 degree turn. I don't know if you've ever heard that. And I both like and dislike that way of summarizing repentance. I like it because it acknowledges something that is true about repentance, which is that repentance has to come, part of it has to be a desire, a true heart desire to change, right? That's what makes it different from the, like, the way my, you know, that people say, I'm sorry, when you know that as soon as you leave, they're planning to go back and do the same thing, right? Repentance has to require a real desire and effort in our heart to change. But it's unhelpful because repentance does not mean that we just fix ourselves and don't struggle with sin anymore. Um, that not even that we don't struggle with the same sins anymore. Um, I think there's this thing that happens sometimes when you talk about 180 degree change, where that means that if you repent of something and you fall into it again, that you think that, um, that somehow God's just done with you or that you failed. And that's not what the idea means. I think the best way to maybe summarize it, um, to maybe be a little more helpful, that 180 degree change thing comes from the idea that the word repent in Greek it's metanoia, but it means to change your mind, right? That's, that's the, what the word um, repent in the Bible actually means. And I think that's a helpful way of saying it, because it means on the one hand that we do have to kind of change our minds about sin, right? We have to look at this thing and say this thing that I was saying, yes, I love this and it's great. I'm going to change, you know, I'm going to acknowledge, no, it's not good. I grieve it. It's, it's wrong. But we also recognize that we can change our mind about something and still struggle to follow through on living that out in our lives. Um, there's, it's the difference between, um, it's the difference between not trying, right? Which is why we need to say that it's not, right? You know, I mean, repentance is saying, I'm going to seek to try to change this thing. Um, but there's a difference between trying and always succeeding too. So repentance can acknowledge that we fail and struggle, but it does mean that we are seeking to have changed hearts. So that's what repentance is. That's what we're called to do as Christians, part of it. And the question that we have to ask is, are we doing that? It is common, I think, as I reflect on that question, for the church to accuse the world of taking sin lightly, of ignoring or excusing it. And that's true, although I always wonder why we act like that's surprising to us, right? I mean, biblically, that's how we should expect the world to work. My concern is that often in the church, I think we take sin lightly, and repentance is one of the places that we see see that. We can take sin lightly in an institutional sense. I've been thinking about that a lot the last few weeks, as there have been some significant things, watching different denominations where you see the fallout of of ways that— that they allowed themselves to function like old boys clubs instead of churches, frankly, but, you know, the ways that they just excuse and covered up sin rather than owning it and addressing it. Um, I think about 
institutionally taking sin lightly every time some celebrity pastor falls into sin and two years later they're back on TV, right? Um, But I also think about that in our own lives. Something that I think about a lot is that everyone I meet seems to have this idea that Christians think that they're better than other people. Um, And it's true that Christians should be seeking to obey God, right? That's a good thing. But, um, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about, um, is about acknowledging our sin, right? And trusting in Jesus for salvation and owning that we are imperfect and flawed people. And I meet, almost everyone I meet, you know, in the world, like, doesn't get that. But here's the thing. The only reason that can be is because we haven't been clear about it with them, right? Because we haven't owned it for ourselves. I think too often we buy into the idea in the church, too, that we're the morally good people that don't mess up. Because if we were truly practicing repentance in the way that this, um, that this psalm— I mean, just think, just think about this for a minute, okay? So, so we talked about what David did, and we talked about his repentance, but think about what this psalm represents, right? I'm sure that when David prayed the prayer of repentance there with Nathan the prophet, he didn't, like, do it in poetry, right, in exactly the form that we have it now. But what he did then is he recognized that repentance was so important— that he took his greatest failure in his life and he made it a song that he then put in Israel's hymn book, the country that he was the king of, so that they could regularly in weekly worship sing about how he screwed up. Right? Like, that's what this psalm is. And that represents a willingness to own in a real public, earnest way that, you know, that that he is sinful and imperfect um, before the people that he's ruling. And while I don't think most of us need to chronicle our darkest moments in songs that we give to others to sing, I do think that we need to recognize that the most powerful witness we can have to Christ is to repent in that kind of way, in a way that owns our sin and acknowledges it publicly and admits it and accepts that the consequences are just. And I think that has a power to actually, like, change people and change the world that pretending like we're morally better than them can't change. So that's repentance, right? We need to seek to engage in that. But that's not the sum of the psalm, and just saying that is only half the story. Because if we're going to do that, we also need to understand how God responds to repentance. How God responds. So how does he respond? First, God forgives us. God forgives us. Throughout this psalm, David is repenting of his sin and asking God for mercy. Just listen to to these different prayers that he has. Start at the beginning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He prays for mercy, and he uses this image of being washed, of being made clean from the guilt of his sin. He uses that same idea in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. So cleansing with hyssop is this process that people who were were sick and had to live out, you know, because of contagion, had to live outside of the community in the Old Testament. When they came back and the priests would look at them and recognize that, you know, that they were well, they would would do the ceremony with hyssop, and where they would be, like, cleansed with water thrown from its branches. So it's, it's this picture of being restored to right relationship and washed and healed. Verse 9, the same plea for forgiveness. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. So don't look at my sins and choose not to remember them. Verse 14, 
a very specific plea for David, who has real, literal blood on his hands. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God and Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. And here's the point. All of those prayers of David, David prays them because they rest on his trust that this is the kind of God he serves, and God proves that he is that kind of God by forgiving um, David. See, we said that that story about David and Bathsheba and Uriah, that's a hard story in the Bible. And part of why it's hard is because we just don't expect to encounter it in the Bible. But another part of why it's hard is because I think we struggle with the fact that given the magnitude of David's sins, God does forgive him. He forgives him so fully that he, at the end of his life, calls him a man after my own heart. Two caveats, as we note that. One is that while God does forgive David, David does still have to deal with real consequences from his choices. Um, he and Bathsheba lose the first ch- their first child um, because of the fact that he chose to, you know, I mean, add Bathsheba. He marries her, um, you know, I mean, later in the story, and um, that ends up splitting his family as he has these different parts of his family that are turned against each other. Um, And Israel suffers because their king has done those things. There is real judgment. um, And so we shouldn't say that there's not, you know, that God's just like, ah, no big deal, murder and stuff. Um, But we can't lose the deeper reality that God does in a real way forgive David and forgive us fully and finally. Ultimately, we recognize that he pays for David's sins and ours on the cross. And then when he pays for them, he pays the whole bill. God forgives our sins. There's no debt left. When God looks at a repentant sinner in Scripture, I don't know if you've thought about this, but it says that he sees them as perfectly clean. That he, he does not, he chooses to just overlook the evil things that they have done. That he sees us as if we are righteous and as perfect as Jesus. And he delights in us um, that, 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 yes, he's aware of our sins, but they aren't a part of how he thinks of us. Right? That he rejoices over us in singing, the book of Zephaniah says. If you are a repentant sinner, right? If you repent of your sin, that is how Jesus views you. Despite those failings. That he's never angry with you. He is never um, out to get you. He's never displeased with you. In fact, he is delighted in you. And takes a joy in and celebrates you. God forgives in response to repentance. And we have to recognize that for two reasons. First, because that's what enables us to repent, okay? Um, In our world, we often act as if change needs to come before acceptance with people, right? We look at people and we say, clean up your act, get your act together, and then, you know, and then you can come and we can have a relationship. And the problem with that is that it almost never results in real change, right? Because they just feel stuck in that place. What God offers is this promise that acceptance comes before we fully change. That's what repentance and forgiveness means, right? We have to come to God and repent, yes. But in that moment, we are fully forgiven and accepted. Even though we haven't fixed ourselves yet, even though we might fall and fail in those ways again. That God accepts us, and it's in the experience of that acceptance that then we can begin to change. So more than that, we need— so we need that because that's what enables us to repent. And God's forgiveness also— Um, makes repentance enough. Um, God's forgiveness reminds us that repentance is enough. What we described as a hard thing, right? You know, owning the awful truth and things. 
But I think some of us live lives where even though we've repented, we feel plagued by guilt for things that we've done. We've made terrible choices or done things we shouldn't have in the past, um, and we feel trapped like we should somehow have to repay those things. And the other reality of God's forgiveness is that if you have repented and trusted in him, there's nothing more that you have to do to make this sin up to him. Again, there are consequences, and there are times in this world that you need to do, you know, to do, like, proper things to help people. But, um, but there isn't some, like, cosmic tab that you have to pay off. With God, to receive his forgiveness, if you have repented truly of your sin, that's sufficient. God forgives us. And the other thing he does in response to repentance is that he restores and uses us. He restores and uses us. So David longs to experience the joy of God's presence and salvation. And that is part of what causes him to repent. So verse 12, for example, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Or verse 15, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. So David's hope is that repentance will result in this restoration he has to fellowship with God and worship of him. And um, he also has this hope um, that, that repentance will actually allow him to, um, to see the, the things that he's harmed be restored by God. Not perfectly, but in verse 18, when he prays, he starts praying for Jerusalem now, because he recognizes as king that there's these consequences for his whole kingdom. He says, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar, which within the context of this psalm is a recognition that even though there are consequences for his people, David's hope is that God can bring healing and restoration for the ways that he's hurt people with his sin. And ultimately, he hopes to be used by God again despite his sin. So verse 13 Here's how David puts it. He says, Then I will teach, each tra- or teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Which is a remarkable idea, really, that David somehow has hope that as he repents of his sin and experiences God's grace and forgiveness, God might even use him in his failure in a way that helps and serves other people. He recognizes that in God's forgiveness, not his sin, right? His sin is still terrible, but in God's forgiveness, he can have hope that he might be able to show that forgiveness and grace to others. This is all something I think is really important when we think about living as Christians. Like we said, we have this idea that, that we're supposed to show people that Christianity is about being perfect. But the problem with that at root is that when we do that, what we are bearing witness to is our perfection. Our calling as Christians is to bear witness to God's grace and mercy. That's, that's what we're supposed to be showing the world which means that we need to be showing how God forgives us in our sin. But as we do that, God can use us, even as we fail, to show his power and love to the world. Our sin does not disqualify us from being used by God. In a sense, our sin is what qualifies us. Not the only thing, and that's what's important, right? This isn't saying that sin is somehow good, but it is only sinners who have repented and grieved their sin and experienced God's forgiveness that can really bear witness to Jesus Christ who died for sins and lives for, our, for us to experience his righteousness. One of the ways I think that Satan uses sin in our lives 
is to convince us that we are people that God cannot use. I think the church is full of people who have become convinced of this. That in the kingdom there are two classes of people, two types of Christians, right? There are ordinary Christians who are all messed up, and then there are these like saints, and those are the people that God uses. Um, that people like us, we just kind of hope to skate into heaven somehow and let God use the really holy people. But the truth is that God doesn't just forgive our sins, but he uses sinners like us to build his kingdom. That you are exactly the kind of person that God can restore and use. David is a messed up dude in the Bible, and he's not alone. Abraham is a liar in the sense that, like, his lies get people killed, right? And he's a coward. Moses murders a guy and has a significant crisis of faith. Peter um, is a racist and a hothead and kind of an idiot throughout the Gospels. Paul persecuted Christians and threw them in jail. The Bible is full of characters who have done really bad things. And one of the reasons for that is to remind us that the fact that we have sinned in some significant way is not the end of our story. And it's not the end of God's story working through us. The history of the church is like that, too. Man, we, we tell the stories, I think, sometimes of, like, these people in church history, and we, like, put these halos over their head and pretend like they're perfect. But they're kind of terrible often when you get to know them. Many of the church fathers engaged in this kind of, like, compromise and politicking with the Roman Empire that would make most of us cringe. Um, think about, like, Martin Luther, right, the hero of the Protestant Reformation, um, who was an anti-Semite and had a temper so bad that it— caused a war that killed a quarter of a million people, right? I mean, he is not—I mean, you think about um, even modern saints like, like a Billy Graham are far from perfect. Um, you can go read the transcripts of some conversations he had with Nixon sometimes where he says some pretty terrible things, right? And I don't say that to say that th those people should be discredited in our eyes. I say that to say that that's how everybody's story is. That doesn't make the sin in their life okay, just to be clear, right? Those are significant failures. But the truth is that every human being that God uses in the world is a sinner and will struggle. Maybe not in ways as public or significantly as those people, but every one of us is both sinful and as we repent of that sin and grow in trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation can be used by God. So we have that promise of forgiveness and restoration, but that does rest on our repentance. Those people that I mentioned when I think about church history, they got that too. Near the end of his life, when he was asked um, how he was so successful, this was Billy Graham's response. He says, I am the greatest failure of all men. I was too much with men and too little with God, too busy with business meetings and conducting services. I should have been more with God. Like, that was his posture, right? That I am the greatest failure of all men. Or Martin Luther, who really wore it on his sleeves in some ways. But at the end of his life, his last words when he was asked what his proclamation of hope was, was this. They were, we are beggars. This is true. But the more that we live in repentance, the more we recognize that we come as God as beggars in need of grace and restoration— the more we experience his love and forgiveness in the gospel. And the more we experience that, the more we're able to actually bear witness to that to the world and see God work in a way that changes people. That is our hope, that God in his mercy will have mercy on us as we repent and trust in him.
let's turn from our sin to that salvation. With that in mind, we're going to do something a little bit different here after the sermon. So um, we are um, going to have a time where each of us can engage in some repentance, and we're going to do it differently than we normally would. Um, We're going to do it um, through Psalm 51. 